This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Hope you're doing well today. This hour, Western Australia could soon be home to a $27 billion iron-making plant. All WA needs to do now is just fend off uh, another country who's also very interested in having that plant in its backyard. We'll get to that shortly. And also today, you're going to hear some incredible rainfall totals Over 1,000 millimetres of rain falling in parts of far north Queensland in the last week, just creating absolute chaos for the communities and also fruit farms. For, you know, maybe six to 12 months, we don't know what damage this has done to the trees um, until everything starts calming down a bit. But this is our livelihood. You know, if you've got a job, well, you go. If you can, you'll go back to work if that shop's open on Monday but you can't do that here. And you'll be off to far north Queensland just to have a look at that situation, all the rainfall, what it means for agriculture in that part of Australia. And we'll do that just after a look at the weather right across Western Australia, just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, there were some dramatic events in Mullawar, east of Geraldton over the weekend, with local farmers fighting between 15 and 30 fires that are believed to have been deliberately lit. Police have charged a 25-year-old Geraldton man with two counts of lighting fires and threats to kill. Mullawa farmer Rod Messina thinks he witnessed one of the fires being lit. So I've, I've got home and obviously jumped in our fire unit and, and came out the home farm gate, which is five kilometres east of Mullawar. And I've seen a black car on the side of the road, um, just out the front of front of our place, basically in the in the rail reserve, in the bush. And then next minute I see all this smoke and flames ignite. So I basically passed the car that was coming towards me, sort of veered towards it, but not really. And then, yeah, it sped off. And then I've sort of had to decide whether to because I was in our fire unit, stop and, stop and put the fire out or turn around and sort of follow the guy. What um, did you do? I chose the latter. I, I turned our fire unit around. I, I didn't put any water on our fire and then rang my son who was at home to get my work ute, which uh, had a little bit more power than the old firefighter ute. He met me at the Jolton Mount Magnet Road and then I happened to see the, the black car turn onto the Minganew Mullawar Road and head south. Ah, so you changed Um, vehicles and he went to fight the fire and you were following the person lighting fires? That's correct, yeah, yep. So then I um, rang uh, the Mullawa Bushfire Central as well and they were on their way out of town, so I directed them to our fire because obviously, you know, I couldn't be there. Um, So that was, you know, that was extremely lucky there because they extinguished that, that first fire quite quickly so they could move on to the rest. And then, yeah, I managed to catch up with the, the car one kilometre south next to the Mullaw Golf Club Reserve bush, which uh, the guy, again, was attempting to light up. So, yeah, I, I sort of, I guess, 
beat my horn and shouted and then he hopped in his car and that's when I realised, yeah, unfortunately he had a young child with him. Um, and then so he sped off. Yeah, I suppose I just followed him for probably 10 k's at quite a distance away and then he realised that probably wasn't going to be going anywhere so he started igniting fires out the window, so throwing things out the window and, and I basically watched him probably light another seven fires and then by this stage uh, I come across some of our other farming units so they they started putting those fires out and then the, the the black car had some engine trouble i think or gearbox and the and the car sort of stopped he then tried to light up the car and the and the grass all around it and yeah in the meantime i had my wife obviously ring triple o and she was also uh, tracking me on my phone and she was giving those details to the police as well so we had the the police, we knew the police were on their way, so it was just a matter of, of waiting for them to get here and making sure uh, we kept kept eyes on the person. And so then he proceeded to keep lighting the fires as he was as he was sort of walking along the Minganew South Road, and that's when he sort of then ran across into a paddock, which fortunately for us happened to be a canola paddock, and he was in bare feet, so he couldn't really manoeuvre very fast then. And um, yeah, we sort of cut the fence and. And proceeded just to just to follow him in that paddock, and then um, then the police arrived and and apprehended him, and and then yeah, we just got on with the job of of putting the fires out where we were. Um, but that first and second fire at Witcherina and Peters Road, you know, those fires went for 20 k's. Um, it was a massive massive effort to um, get them under control by everyone. Very scary. And then you turned around and, and went and fought fires. How long did it take to get those? Those two fires that particularly got away uh, under control. I'd stayed on the Minganew South Road with with some units there, and we were lucky again. There was a loop and paddock, loop and stubble paddock, so we managed to get them under control uh, or contained. Certainly, you know, quite quickly. And then, yeah, and then uh, we headed back to the Jolt Mount Magnet fires, and uh, I ended up grabbing our front end loader and then basically just working on that until until the sun went down. But it was yeah, it was amazing. All the fires and all the units in the you know the five major locations all sort of seemed to to almost get contained by sunset. Even the two big fires that sort of because as we were putting them out, um, the units then were moving on to the the next fire to tackle. Even though there was people and there was fire control officers by then at each incident. Uh, and then I think I didn't attend the Peters Road fire because I was at the Tanindawar fire. I think the Waters bombers came in and, and sort of certainly saved the day in a couple of instances, talking to a couple of farmers yesterday. So, yeah, it was just a massive, massive community effort and um, it could have been so much worse. We could have lost the town of Mullawar if, if you know, we'd had the, the reserve light up. Uh, they narrowly missed Pete Freeman's farm sheds and homestead as well. Um, so, yeah, it was just truly amazing, everyone's effort. It sounds like... An absolute nightmare, Rod. Is people lighting fires something that you worry about? Oh, to be honest, look, it's it's never it's never something we've sort of seen very often around here. It's we're all absolutely terrified, you know, of fires this time of year, and, and certainly lightning and and however, and even you know the occasional train starts a fire. So we've certainly had them before, but. The extent of this was just—it was just quite surreal. We just couldn't—you could never—you could never look at it and think, "How can someone light 
in excess of 15 fires over a 70-kilometre distance and how, how we ever got them under control without losing property and life is, is actually beyond me, really, when I sort of stop and look back. It's just amazing how everyone pulled together to just get the job done. An amazing community effort. Thank you so much for, for telling us about what happened. No worries, Lucinda. Thanks very much. And, and well done to everyone and, and um, DFUS. They were extremely quick on the job and um, provided, you know, lots of support. Uh, certainly for the Peters Road fire, it was, it was quite amazing how quick they were to respond. Wow, what an ordeal. Mullawa farmer Rod Messina speaking to Lucinda Jose about some fires locals were fighting over the weekend. 13 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, pastoralists in WA's gas coin say Australia's pathway towards net zero emissions is being gridlocked by government legislation because red tape is stopping them from hosting carbon sequestration and green energy projects on their properties. Joe Prendergast has the story. Joe, what's going on? Belinda, this particular issue affects a group of pastoralists in the Gascoigne region near Carnarvon. What they want to do is host carbon sequestration projects on their properties as well as wind turbines. And those wind turbines would be to create renewable electricity for a green hydrogen project that's planned near Carnarvon. So essentially we're talking about three separate land uses coming onto this one piece of land, grazing, which is currently happening on these stations, as well as carbon and renewable electricity assets. So pastoralists say the three projects can easily coexist but red tape is really stopping either of these two new green land uses from being established. Okay, so why is that? Well, it appears to be a crossover of state and federal legislation that is the issue. And bear in mind, it is pretty difficult to actually work out what is going on here, but that is the feedback that I'm getting. And it's impacting these six stations near Carnarvon. The the carbon projects that we're talking about here are the human-induced regenerative type. Some of them have been mapped out and conditionally registered with the Clean Energy Regulator, and that's been the case for several years, but they're not fully approved. So they're they're not returning money to the pastoralists. Carbon abatement is regulated under the Commonwealth Carbon Credits Act. And just bet that might be part of the problem. So you've got Commonwealth legislation here. And then if we look at green hydrogen and the decision-making around that, around accessing and using Crown land to host hydrogen electricity assets, that falls under the WA Government's Lands Act. So you've got Commonwealth legislation on one side, state on the other. The hydrogen project that's being proposed here is really big. We're talking about 3,000 wind turbines. It's a $25 billion project. The hydrogen would be made close to Carnarvon and using green electricity from wind and some solar, but the hydrogen company says it can't get the tenure or the security of the land that it needs for the project planning to progress. And so what pastoralists, the green hydrogen and the carbon trading companies have all told me is that the two new land uses that are on the table here don't seem to be progressing because they'd overlap on the stations and they would need the state and the Commonwealth legislation to enable that coexistence, and no one seems to be able to work out how to achieve that. All right, so Joe, you've you've spoken to 
the hydrogen and the carbon companies. Do they want to coexist? Do they think this is possible? Absolutely, they do. Province Resources is the hydrogen company here, and they're very firm on that coexistence. They sent me a statement which said that they have said from day one that green hydrogen can coexist side by side with both carbon farming and pastoral activities, and that they still believe that to be the case. And my understanding is that the area of land disturbance that we're talking about here for the required electricity assets is actually not that big, so there probably wouldn't be that much disturbance to a carbon project. The carbon company that has been brokering these deals is Green Collar Carbon. They have several projects uh, registered with the regulator. And they've told me that they believe that carbon and hydrogen can coexist. They've worked with mining companies in other areas where you've got a carbon project and a mining project and coexistence isn't a problem here or there. It's just that it hasn't been done with hydrogen assets before. So there is no precedent for them to follow. So both groups there are really frustrated that these projects aren't going anywhere. And I spoke to Simon Thomas from Marin Station, one of the affected properties, and he's also pushing for these projects to both be built on his property. It's impossible for the, um, for the departments to make a decision because of the complexity of the scenario. But in saying that, I also feel that they're overthinking the whole thing. I truly believe that the carbon project needs the wind turbines to be in that area as well because this country here you know it, it with with um bushfires it, it burns we need the um the land to be broken up with use of access you know tracks and 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 um earth pads you know for the tur- for the turbines purely from a from a fire management perspective this year with with the dry times you know this is going to be a long fire season so Government departments really need to understand the two projects can coexist and in actual fact, in, in my belief, they have to. To me, it's just a no-brainer. Unfortunately, obviously there's you know, legislation and, and acts that, that everything has to fit into, but um, governments, both state and federal governments, have both proven in recent months if they really want to make things happen, they can push it through pretty quick. And Simon Thomas is pretty upfront that the two new green land uses would create two new income streams for him and other pastoralists in that Carnarvon area. And at the moment, it's really dry there. As we've been talking about, livestock prices aren't great. So you can imagine that would be a pretty helpful prospect. This is the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. And this afternoon, just talking about some pastoralists in WA's gas coins saying that Australia's pathway towards the net zero emissions is being gridlocked by government legislation because red tape is basically stopping them from hosting carbon sequestration and green energy projects on those properties. Joe Prendergast has been looking at this story in some detail. Now, Joe, there are a number of carbon sequestration projects on pastoral lands that have unconditional approval here in WA at the moment. So why is it some of them have been approved and these ones near Carnarvon aren't getting the same approval? There are some HIR carbon projects in WA approved, as you mentioned, but it might not be as many as you think. I got some numbers from the Clean Energy Regulator, which showed that of the 99 human-induced regenerative ACU projects registered in WA, just 36 of them have reached unconditional 
registration. So only about a third are actually returning money to landholders. And consent for these projects seems to be the issue. So for a HIR carbon project to be green lit, it needs consent from a number of groups, including any relevant native title body, banks, state governments and and landholders. So in this case, in the Gascoigne, Green Collar Carbon does not yet have state government consent for all of the projects that it's trying to get off the ground, those carbon projects. It's got some, but not all. And it has not got formal consent from traditional owners. So Joe, where is all this heading? Well, some sort of solution needs to be found. I think that goes without saying. Province Resources, what it's trying to do for its hydrogen project is create something that's ready to go. They want all the planning approvals in place before they can then go to the market. So you can imagine that they can't keep trying to get approval for their project without land for their electricity assets. And a carbon project, well, it can be conditionally registered for five years and then that's it. It's it's done. And I'm told that some of these projects in the Gascoigne have been conditionally registered for about three years. So the clock is really ticking. Simon Thomas feels like he's almost being asked to choose between the two projects. And as you can imagine, it might be easy to say, well, we'll go with carbon because it's approved in other, in other locations. There's a beaten path to follow. But he's adamant he's not doing that. He thinks that both should be there and he really believes that green hydrogen is part of that Gascoigne region's future. Our carbon project is currently for 25 years, whereas with the green energy, um, it's very hard to put a timeline on that, but that will be you know, probably 80, 100 plus years. The other thing also to um, consider is that the overall benefit to the Gascoigne area with green hydrogen is massive. This green hydrogen project is tens of billions of dollars. It's a big project and it's hard to get our heads around the scale, but it is huge. And the benefit to this area will be much broader benefit to the the whole economy than purely reliant on a relatively short-term you know, carbon project. Simon Thomas and other pastoralists got together recently to try and work out a coordinated plan that would help them get both these two new green land uses off the ground and returning some sort of investment. And they're hoping that they might be able to do that in a cohesive way and that might help them discuss some sort of way forward with government. And I did approach the Department of Lands on this story. They told me that the WA Department of Lands would not comment on contractual arrangements between third parties. So a bit of... uh bit of discussion and negotiation still to go, Belinda. Joe, thank you for going through that. Joe Prendergast telling you about some WA pastoralists who say green land use proposals on their properties are being hampered by red tape. Now, Joe's posted that story online for you. You can go and read through it now. Just search Carbon Projects Red Tape ABC. Carbon Projects Red Tape ABC for Joe's story. 24 past 12, an update from the newsroom isn't far away at half past 12. Then checking weather conditions right around Western Australia. We'll pop over to far north Queensland and check out the rainfall and the flooding and the implications of that. And then off to Mushay just before the news at one to go through the cattle market details. Uh, the last cattle market at Mushay for this year. First, though, Western Australia is facing off against a country in the Middle East to become home to a $27 billion iron-making plant. Michelle Stanley has this report. 
Port Hedland in Western Australia's remote Pilbara is known for one thing, iron ore. It's home to the world's largest bulk export port and brings billions of dollars into the Australian economy every year. And now it's vying to become home to Australia's largest iron-making plant. Australia's peak iron-making production uh, was around 8 million tonnes per annum. This is 12 million tonnes per annum if we had all six stages. So it really is a very significant project. Phil Scott is a consultant for South Korean steelmaker POSCO. It's looking into the feasibility of building an iron plant in the Bedari Strategic Industrial Area in Port Hedland. The plant would use gas to reduce iron ore from mines around the Pilbara into pellets. Those iron pellets would then be processed into hot briquetted iron, HBI, and shipped to South Korea for use in steelmaking. Longer term, the company's hoping to replace the gas with green hydrogen to produce green steel in South Korea and it's looking to stump up a pretty penny. It's a significant spend for each one of these um, stages is is probably going to cost of the order of four to four and a half billion dollars to construct and get into operations so it is a really significant spend. In terms of employment uh, each stage is probably going to take uh, two to two and a half thousand construction workers and around 400 people to operate. It is a really exciting step that Australia and Western Australia has been looking for for downstream processing and there's no question there's a significant value add you know, probably of the order of four or five times the price for iron ore. But Port Hedland isn't the only area of interest for the South Koreans. POSCO's also considering a location in Oman in the Middle East. Phil Scott says it would probably be cheaper overseas, but he's hoping to see the project land on Australian shores. We're very focused on trying to make sure that we can attract stage one and retain it for the benefit of uh, Australia, Western Australia and, and Port Hedland. Local businesses are hoping to see it land here too. Claire Boyce is the former CEO and now a board member of the local Chamber of Commerce. She's also a director of an excavation company and she's excited about what's to come in the region. It's quite an exciting time to be in Hedland. There's over $170 billion of expenditure planned for the Pilbara and of that 70 billion is going to be in indust- green industrial projects so that's exciting. But Claire Boyce and other business owners have experienced firsthand the highs and the lows of the Pilbara economy so she knows there are a few issues which need to be ironed out first. I think housing is obviously the biggest issue I think that has the the add-on effect to childcare and training obviously there's the workforce I think we've got a an unemployment rate of 1.7%, so the access to further employees will be tricky. Um, so we're going to have to get the housing component right. If if people can, you know, get ready and prepare themselves for this, and and it's it's a, the unknown. I think right now is what will that look like for the Pilbara? What will the Pilbara look like in the next 10 years? And there's a few uh, chinks in, in the chain that need to get ironed out before we can we, we will see this come into fruition but it's quite an exciting time. There's more to it than just economic development though. This is also about the shift towards net zero. For POSCO's stage one alone the Port Hedland Green Steel project would cut the emissions intensity of steel making 
in half. And that's before green hydrogen comes into the picture. UWA sustainability expert Professor Bill Grace says another major plus side of this project would be the demand it'd create for hydrogen in the Pilbara. And that could have a big flow-on effect to nearby hydrogen hopefuls. Having a massive renewable energy facility to produce hydrogen, as you say, requires somebody to want to use the hydrogen. We're a way away from transporting it by ship, apart from the fact that it's still extremely expensive to produce through electrolyzers. Um, so if you're going to be making hydrogen, then you're looking for customers both onshore and offshore. POSCO itself has teamed up with global energy company Engie to look into the potential for a green hydrogen plant in the region. And 300 kilometres up the road, BP is hoping to use solar and wind to produce 1.6 million tonnes of hydrogen each year. Professor Bill Gray says the demand coming from POSCO is critical. There's still quite a way to go to get these massive uh, wind and solar projects together. I'm reasonably optimistic that this would happen, this first stage of, of POSCO producing a hot briquetted iron plant, and that would be a major boon for the energy hub um, and hopefully kick it off. There's a long way to go on this project before any dirt is turned. POSCO expects to complete its feasibility study early next year and announce its final investment decision for stage one by mid-year. Construction at this stage is pencilled in to start in 2025, with Stage 1 operating by 2027. But Professor Bill Grace is optimistic this could be the start of something big. Uh, the question really is, is the production of a hot briquetted iron plant in Port Hedland the start of a much bigger potential green steel industry in, uh, in the Pilbara? Let's hope so. UWA sustainability expert Professor Bill Grace ending Michelle Stanley's report. You can read more of that story online. Search ABC Green Steel for Michelle's story. It is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Premier has suggested low-level nuclear waste generated by US nuclear submarines stationed in Perth could be dealt with in South Australia. Details of a plan to station 700 American personnel at HMAS Stirling have been revealed via a Freedom of Information application. The briefing notes include details of a proposed low-level radioactive waste management facility. Roger Cook says those details are still being worked out. The WA government has announced it will return to individual negotiations with public sector unions. In recent years, the government's imposed a set pay rise for all of its employees, leaving unions to negotiate things like conditions and bonuses. But Labor says a putting a pay back on the table will allow for issues to be better addressed. And four military helicopters will be sent to Queensland to assist with the flood response in the state's far north. Defence says two Chinook helicopters and two AW139 helicopters will be sent from Townsville to Cairns as soon as possible. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you for the update. Appreciate that. 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come, we'll head to Mushe just before the news at one o'clock today. Cattle numbers were down at Mushe today and it was the last cattle sale at the Mushe sale yards for this year. And we'll have the details just before one. Also, now you know there's several sort of players around the country who are in, well, various stages of growing 
uh, cannabis for medicinal uses. Well, I wonder if those producers are ready for the legalisation of cannabis for recreational use because there are a number of bills. There's one in front of the federal government and several in front of, well, a, a few state governments, including here in Western Australia, calling for that and they're all going to be debated next year. So we'll see where the industry is at on the medicinal front and also whether they could keep up with demand on a recreational front. That's to come between now and the news at one. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Luke Huntington. Let's start with a look around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. Uh, yeah, very quiet over the Southwest Land Division uh, today. Uh, we do have a, a new ridge uh, coming in along the uh, the south of the state, so that's um, maintaining mostly clear conditions. Um, but just a little bit of um, gustiness with those um, easterlies uh, today, and that's going to be the story throughout the week as well. Um, so heading into uh, tomorrow, um, we do see the ridge developing further, and we do see a trough developing over the very far northern parts of the Southwest Land Division. So over the northern central west district um, but it's going to create a squeeze between that trough and the height of the south and create a very very windy morning um, especially over parts of the west coast and about the the darling scarp tomorrow morning Um, we do have a severe weather warning current for that scarp area overnight tonight with uh, damaging winds possible Um, but over much of the southwest land division you'll probably get um, some gustiness with those easterlies Uh, and we also have a possibility of some um, thunderstorms forming from the morning period and continuing into the afternoon over the lower west district, uh, the southern parts of the Wheat Belt and northern parts of the Great Southern. Uh, in that area, those thunderstorms, um, they're not going to have too much rainfall in, so little to no rainfall, um, one to two millimetres maybe, um, a little bit higher if you do get a couple of thunderstorms move over the same location. Um, and then there is a risk of that dry lightning from those thunderstorms as well, which um, start can start new fires, um, which is not good with those um, strong east is expected tomorrow if that does happen. Um, And then heading into Wednesday, um, we do see a very, very similar pattern. The trough will remain over northern parts of the central west district. And so those um, thunderstorms are set to continue, uh, maybe extending a little bit further eastwards, but um, probably over uh, the eastern parts of the lower west throughout uh, most parts of the central wheat belt, the northern great southern, um, expecting uh, those uh, thunderstorms again on that Wednesday. Uh, Once again, little to no rainfall, um, as I mentioned before, maybe one to two millimetres with those storms. And and again, dry lightning is a risk with those storms. Um, And then as we head into Wednesday, those uh, storms will probably focus down onto areas near the south coast. So probably south of Bustleton across to Esperance, um, there is a a risk of um, thunderstorms continuing through that area. Again, uh, little rainfall expected with those thunderstorms. And uh, the trough does begin to move inland on later Thursday, and we do see another new ridge develop on Friday, Um, and then that'll continue uh, into the weekend as well. And what's the weather like across the north and eastern parts of the state, Luke? So the northern parts of the state today are very, very quiet. The only really weather to speak of is just some isolated showers and thunderstorms over the far northern Kimberley today. So places like Columbaroo, Kananara, Wyndham, they're they're a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon. 
Um, and then very similar conditions uh, tomorrow as well. Just in that far northern Kimberley, there's that risk of uh, afternoon showers and thunderstorms, but very isolated and you wouldn't expect too much rainfall with those storms. Um, it's not till you get to Wednesday where the thunderstorms become a little bit more extensive, so right throughout the Kimberley into the northeastern interior. Um, and But we also have uh, thunderstorms possible over the goldfields and the southern interior, um, and then also over the northeastern Gascoyne and far southeastern Pilbara. Um, heading into Thursday, uh, we do see the thunderstorm activity continuing through the Kimberley, uh, getting into the eastern Pilbara and down through most parts of the interior, and a very, very similar area uh, for Friday as well. And then the warnings this afternoon. Yep, so we do have a heatwave warning. Um, so we do have severe to extreme heatwave warnings covering the Kimberley, the North Interior, the Pilbara and South Interior. Uh, over that, over those parts, the temperature's been getting to sort of the low to mid 40, 40s and overnight temperatures high 20s. That'll continue throughout the week. And then we do have the uh, severe weather warning for parts of the lower west and southwest overnight tonight with those gusty winds about the scarp. And also a fire weather warning today for the Swan Inland South, Capes and and Blackwood Fire Weather Districts. Luke, thank you for going through all of that. It is 23 to 1, and we'll stick with the weather a little bit longer. We'll look at the weekend rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, in the northern and eastern forecast districts, most of the rain again fell in the Kimberley, which is the norm. Kununurra at a couple of the rain gauge locations got 30 mils, but at the Deep Herd Station, nothing at all. Lake Argyle Resort, 7, Theta, 14, and Trust got 16. And then in the Eucla District, a bit more rain again. Air recorded 8 mils, so they'll be happy with that follow-up rain to what was recorded last week. And then in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, it was just a little bit patchy in the Central West, a few ones and twos here and there, but Latham topped it with four. And then in the Southern Coastal Region, Mount Howick and Oakmarsh Farm both recorded four. In the Central Wheat Belt, Amory Acres four. Uh, Belka East recorded 11, Grabble 8, Hines Hill 15, Calabera North 9, Mount Walker 7 and then in the Great Southern Region it was mainly 2s and 3s but nothing really above that although Corrigan did record 3 mils but that was over 5 days. But um, Bell, I was based in uh, Cairns for a fair while um, just in a moment, we're going to be talking about the huge amounts of rainfall that has fallen in far north Queensland in the last week, because those figures are nothing compared to what has fallen in far north Queensland, particularly over the weekend. But just quickly, in some fire activity, there's a Bushfire Watching Act that's currently in place near Perth. So this is in the cities of Belmont, Canning and Kalamunda. So it's for people between Tonkin Highway and Orong Road from St John Road in the east to McDowell Street in the west in parts of Kewdale, Wattle Grove and Welshpool. And there is still a possible threat to lives and homes in that area. And for more information, you can go to Emergency WA, the website. And due to the risk of fire, a total fire ban has been issued for today for a number of shires in the outer Perth metropolitan region. It's Armadale, Calamunda and Serpentine, Jarradale, And then in the southwest region, Augusta, Margaret River, Boyup Brook, Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Busselton, Donnybrook, Bailing Up 
and Murray. So you know when you do have a total fire ban in place, no lighting fires for cooking, camping, or anything like that. No hot work such as grinding and welding, and no off-road use of four-wheel drives or quad bikes. And it's your responsibility just to check with your shire about the restrictions that are in place for the total fire ban or any harvest bans as well. And again, the website is Emergency WA for any information on what you can and can't do. So, um, Bill, when I was uh, based in Cairns, I, Cyclone Larry came through in around 2006 and it was a Category 5. At the time, the wind damage is what caused so much devastation to some of the farms in that area. But towards the end of last week, we were talking about Cyclone Jasper. It was only, in inverted commas, at a Category 1 or 2. And most people thought, well, okay, the danger's passed. But as Lucy Cooper reports, it's the huge amount of rain that's fallen with Cyclone Jaspers coming through that has now caused riverbanks to break, roads have now been cut, water and fuel supplies are being cut. It is causing havoc. The rain has been relentless. And whilst it's called the wet tropics, this event has been unprecedented. Professor Jonathan Knott said it's been record-breaking. The gauged record uh, started in 1915 on the Barron River. Uh, the main gauge is at Myola, which is near Karanda. And this flood uh, is the largest recorded flood that we've ever had in Cairns. And it's larger by a substantial amount. Um, so it's, it's a very, very serious flood. The rainfall totals have been phenomenal. 21 gauges already that have received over a metre of rain within the last seven days. And over the last 24 hours, the totals are Cairns, 307 millimetres. And north of Cairns, Black Mountain, 640. Yandel, 701. Dewan, 829. Daintree, 637. Port Douglas, 389 in the past 24 hours. When Tropical Cyclone Jasper passed through far north Queensland last week, the Category 2 system brought down trees and damaged properties, but left far less of a mark on farms compared to Yazi in 2011 and Larry in 2006. But the subsequent flooding has been devastating. In the Atherton Tablelands, a region west of Cairns known for its incredible produce, from coffee to mangoes, bananas, sugar and avocados, many farmers have sought higher ground. Well, I'm looking at a lake. There's lots of lakes around our place and I'm at my neighbour, the the Golden Drop Winery, and um, they're higher ground and um, it's a bit of a family tradition. Every 20 20 or so years or 25 years we end up here when this sort of event occurs, so... um, just big lakes, it's just a massive amount of water slowly surrounding us. Joe Morrow is a mango farmer and chair of Far North Queensland Growers Association, based at Baibura, just outside of Mariba. A warmer-than-average winter resulted in fewer mangoes this year, and now barely any will be making it to supermarket shelves. The unfortunate thing is where I did have some mangoes, um, there's a big percentage of them will be underwater. Uh, and if it breaks bank, probably uh, what... KPs I had are probably going to go and probably some impact on some of on my um, palmers and labourers. So I'd probably end up losing, um, I, at, at the end I probably would have had a reasonable crop of the late varieties, but I reckon I'll lose at least 70%. And that's just a wild guess at this point in time, but it won't be less than that. Further south of Joe, Nick Tromp, a stud beef cattle farmer, has properties around Tinaroo Dam, which spilled late yesterday afternoon. 
It's extraordinary. At 7 o'clock last Thursday, Tinaroo Dam was sitting at 71% full, about 330,000 megalitres, and not rising because the rivers were fairly benign. Today, it's at 107% or 449,000 megalitres. So we've seen a 50% increase in four days, which is unprecedented. The rainfall has not just cut off roads, it's destroyed them. I think one of the major things for the region, for agriculture and the region more broadly, is the damage to road infrastructure will be unprecedented. The only B-double road access from the coast to the Atherton Tablelands, the Palmerston Highway, looks like it's been hit by an earthquake. It has had a landslip and been split down the middle and dropped about a metre. So I would imagine that's going to take weeks, if not months, to repair and get it safe. And as we speak, the only road uh, I believe that you can access the Tablelands is uh, from the west um, I think that's still open, but all the roads to the coast are closed um, and Cairns itself is isolated and many other communities are isolated. So, um, yeah, the road damage, talking to some of the local mayors yesterday, uh, the water's just coming up through the road surfaces and and uh, it, it's going to be so extensive and the federal and state governments have already indicated they're going to, have to cough up a lot of money to um, undertake repairs that could take many months, particularly if the wet season continues and we can't get on those roads to repair them. Residents have had to evacuate their homes as rivers broke their banks. In the Aboriginal Shire of Woodrow Woodrow in the Cape York region, the entire community is set to be evacuated. Resident Matt Nichols said it's a dire situation for residents, with many trapped on roofs. It's a disaster at the moment, to be honest. We've got um, the Bloomfield River. So if people don't know where Woodrow is, it's north of the Daintree, um, south of Cooktown. Um, and it's a small Aboriginal community, about 400 people. So um, they were well prepared for the cyclone. Um, and obviously the eye of Cyclone Jasper crossed Woodrow um, on Wednesday night. Um, it didn't actually do much damage, but the rainfall has been devastating. And, and last night, the, the Bloomfield River burst its banks and um, a number of houses are underwater. And we've got a lot of residents on roofs right now and um, desperately waiting to be evacuated. In his first four days as the new Premier of Queensland, Stephen Miles has had his new role dominated by this devastating situation. Well, we see a lot of natural disasters. This is just about the worst I can I can remember. I've been talking to Cairns locals on the ground uh, through yesterday and through the night, and they say they've never seen anything like it. And for that, for someone from far north Queensland to say that, that's that's really saying something. There is good news though. Falls are expected to ease by this afternoon. But then farmers must turn to the mammoth job of cleaning up. For Gina Galati, who has a citrus orchard on the edge of the Barren River in the far north, she's only just beginning to assess damage. Look, ever since this event started, we've received over a thousand mil of rain. From just a shed perspective, um, you know, we've got three pallet stackers, all the motors were underground, so they're pretty much all gone. We've got, you know, 450 bin gas room, that compressor is gone for that. Um, yeah, so once, once, once we can get a better assessment, we'll be able to, to fully comprehend what we've lost. A mammoth 12 to 18 months lie ahead for farmers in the far north. But we've lost our livelihood too. For, you know, maybe 6 to 12 months, we don't know what damage this has done to the trees um, until everything starts calming down a bit. But this is our livelihood. You know, if you've got a job, well, you go. If you can, you'll go back to work if that shop's open on Monday. But you can't do that here. It'd just be so overwhelming, wouldn't it? Gina Galati, a citrus farmer in far north Queensland, ending that report from Lucy Cooper.
13 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And Australia is facing a crossroads on the legislation of cannabis for recreational use. This year, the Australian Greens presented a bill before the federal parliament and the legalised cannabis party put bills before the WA, New South Wales and Victorian parliaments and all four are going to be debated next year. But are Australian cannabis producers ready for legalisation? Elsie Kennedy has the story. I'm in an unidentified building on the outskirts of Mildura, on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. The location is a secret because what's inside is very valuable and illegal unless it's sold through a pharmacy to someone with a prescription. Yeah, that's the little booties on our feet. Yeah, there's booties and there's lab coats as well. Um, I'll pop some buds on. Go around and take a look. So this is another workspace. This is where we do most of our cutting preparation. ASX-listed Can Group is one of about a dozen companies growing cannabis legally in Australia. It was the first company in Australia to receive licences for the research and cultivation of cannabis after the drug was legalised for medicinal use in 2016. Can Group currently produces nine tonnes of cannabis over four hectares of glasshouses and employs 80 staff. It says it's ready to rapidly scale up if a bill proposed by the Australian Greens to allow adult use or recreational cannabis passes the Australian Parliament next year. I think we're very well positioned to capitalise on what may be a big boom in demand should legalisation come through. That's Can Group General Manager Russell McGifford. Uh, the scale we're operating at the moment is around 20% of our possible glasshouses built out and producing. That's more than enough to keep us comfortable, um, keep us growing very healthily. Uh, but we have the capital investment already on site to really turn on another 20% of the glasshouse. Uh, and we've made fair headway into the investment required to turn on the full glasshouse facility. Now, that glasshouse facility could be producing well north of 75 tonnes per year, which currently probably outstrips Australian demand in the medicinal market. Um, so depending upon if legalisation happened, the timelines and the demand that that caused, um, CAN's in a really good position to move. How would the product you're producing at the moment differ from the product you could produce for a legal recreational market? Um, probably at the core of it, not substantially. So the product we're producing at the moment is to pharmaceutical requirements, but we don't produce it to that grade because it needs to be pharmaceutical. We produce it to that grade because it's good quality and it's what, what patients and customers would need. So we wouldn't really change anything around how we're producing for a recreational market. What probably would happen from the introduction of a recreational market is we see a big blooming, and there's a bit of it in the medicinal market, but I think it would be a lot more pronounced, uh, in the variety of products that were demanded. At the moment, it's very focused on the assay and the drug impact for patient and consistency in more of a recreational market. And I think beer is an okay analogy for that. You know, you might see there's a big market that develops in a fairly consistent, cost-effective product, but you also get the version kind of craft market where there's a lot of different products and there's a lot of development into the variety space. And that's variety of the smell, variety of the appearance, different colours, Obviously, variety in the, the assay of the, the flower as well. And if you look at the California market, that's kind of what you see over there. It's really driven by a lot of novelty. Since medicinal cannabis was legalised in Australia in 2016, the Australian medicinal cannabis industry has grown really fast. There are now about a dozen growers producing medicinal cannabis for a commercial market and more than 100,000 patients purchasing the product from pharmacies. The Australian Greens this year proposed a bill in the federal parliament to legalise cannabis for recreational use among adults 
and regulate the growing, selling and manufacturing of the drug. Public hearings into that proposal will be held early next year. The Legalised Cannabis Party has also brought a bill before the Victorian, New South Wales and Western Australian parliaments, which proposes allowing adults to legally possess small quantities of cannabis for personal use and grow up to six plants. Russell says if people were allowed to grow plants in their own backyards, it wouldn't affect sales from big companies like his. So I think you'd still see there's very much demand for central sale of the product for larger facilities that can do it at a more consistent, more quality. It's available off the shelf. It's available at a consistent price. Certainly wouldn't have any issues with people wanting to do it themselves and really get in and learn the art. Like, I mean, who doesn't want to grow some of their vegetables at home? But that doesn't mean that nobody produces carrots at a large scale. So. Near Swan Hill, east of Mildura on the Murray River, another cannabis producer is approaching cultivation very differently to Can Group. Instead of growing cannabis inside a glass house, ECS Botanics has six hectares of cannabis growing out in the open. With 68 employees, it's one of the biggest employers near the small town of Kerrang. ECS Botanics Managing Director Nan-Marie Scoury says legalising adult-use cannabis would be good for her business, but she says it's important that the rules around cannabis cultivation don't get watered down. I think it would be a very good thing for the business. You know, we would take more from the black market, so people who don't want to go to a doctor to get a prescription are currently still buying off the black market. I think that business would become available to the the commercial market or or the the legal market, and I think that would be really good for our business. It's certainly demonstrated in other countries that companies like ours would benefit from legalisation of cannabis. There's a few discussions happening in Australia at the moment around legalising recreational cannabis. The bill before the federal parliament is looking at opening up production of cannabis potentially to, I mean, the Greens would like it to be opened to cooperatives, they've said, companies much smaller than your own. I'm wondering just first of all what your thoughts are on that. Do you have any concerns around that? Um, I mean, I don't have concerns around it, but I'm not sure that it's the right strategy. I think there's a a huge amount of compliance that goes into growing cannabis. Um, We have to be very strict in terms of the inputs, that there's no pesticides or herbicides. It's because of the way it's ingested. Cannabis is actually what we call bioaccumulative, so or hemp particularly, is very useful in cleaning up contaminated soil because it sucks up all the bad things. So... When you grow cannabis, particularly when you grow it for a medicine, there's very, very strict um, protocols that we have to make sure that the soil is doesn't have any heavy metals, that we don't spray anything on it. And I think that's where people don't necessarily understand that it's not a case of just throwing out a few seeds and harvesting flour. Once it's, it is ready for harvest as well, the process that you go through to actually cure and dry and pack in our facility is all done under what we call GMP, which is pharmaceutical facility. Now, I don't believe that most smaller cooperatives can afford to do that. So I guess the question would be then, would it be okay if substandard cannabis is then put into the market? ECS Botanics Managing Director Nan-Marie Scoury speaking to Elsie Kennedy. Five minutes to one. 
Well, the Northern Territory's first cotton gin has been officially opened. It's just north of Catherine, cost about $70 million to build and means NT growers will no longer have to transport their crop thousands of kilometres to Queensland for processing. The gin is being operated by local company WANT Cotton or Want Cotton in partnership with global cotton giant Louis Dreyfus. Want Cotton Director David Connolly says the gin is bigger and better than the original plan. Well, this is the newest facility in Australia. It's, it's brand spanking new. The capacity is 50 bales per hour, so the capacity actually works out at how many hours you want to put in. Mm. You know, we'll do 150,000 bales, no trouble at all in a season, if that's what we need to do. Roughly, what areas has this cotton come from? Uh, this cotton's come from... Uh, Areas of the Douglas Daly, Tipperary, Catherine areas and south of Catherine in the Northern Territory. And as far as field as, um, as Kununurra, we've got four growers that have sent their cotton over from Kununurra. Now, a lot of growers have taken the opportunity to send their cotton south again this year. That's a cash flow issue, Matt, because yeah. you don't get paid for your cotton until you gin your cotton and then sell it to the merchant that you've, sold, that you've set up your sale with. But these people have decided that uh, they wanted to have their cotton ginned here and they've foregone that early cash flow. To, um, to gin this cotton after the opening now. And it's then bound for export, I assume. Yeah, well, it can go... Out of Darwin? Yeah, it can go anywhere in the world. Interestingly enough, some will go out of Adelaide. So the most amazing uh, freight figures, things like rail freight to Adelaide and then on a boat to the world works, and also uh, on trucks to, to Darwin to the world. So um, that's, that's mostly what will happen. There might be some cotton go southeast, head towards Brisbane as well but look, most of it will go out of out of Darwin but but there will, will also be cotton from this gin go out of Adelaide the, the logistics numbers are amazing David Connolly, Director of Want Cotton, speaking to Matt Brand and David's also President of the NT Cattlemen's Association. You can read more of Matt's story online, search ABC Rural Cotton Gin and you'll find Matt's story ABC Rural Cotton gin. Three minutes to one to the markets and it was a relatively small cattle sale at Mouche this morning. Not quite a thousand head on offer. Terry Birkin, can you run through the prices? Hi Belinda. Numbers decreased by over 1,200 head for the last cattle auction of the year at Mouche. Quality was very mixed with reasonable supplies of local villa and yearling calves as well as some good quality cows. A run of pastoral steers and heifers at finished trade weights were offered and a good run of young bulls targeted at live exporters after values gained some momentum last week. Most of the usual crowd of buyers were in attendance and bidding with healthy interest. Feel of steers gained 5 to 10 cents, selling from 220 to 264 cents, and while lightweight Villa heifers remained firm, bodies over 280 kilos lit to 10 cents, ranging from 150 to 246 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers improved 20 to 30 cents, with weights 280 kilos and under, returning 180 to 250 cents, and heavier calves sold to a top of 240 cents a kilo. Local yearling heifers remained equal, making 120 to 210 cents, and their lightweight pastoral sisters ranged from 20 cents to 194 cents a kilo. Grown steers lifted 10 to 15 cents, selling from 102 to 230 cents, and grown heifers held firm, making 130 to 190 cents a kilo. The cow market lifted overall, especially at feeder weight, starting from 50 cents up to 130 cents with better frame and condition, while medium and heavy cows returned 100 to 154 cents a kilo. 
Live export bulls saw healthy gains again this week, selling from 128 to 322 cents, while slaughter bulls also lifted 5 cents and sold to a top of 172 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Terry. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.